The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Well, welcome this Resurrection Day morning. Now, we need to refer to this as Resurrection Day and not Easter. The etymological derivation of the term Easter goes back to the Babylonian goddess Ishtar, who was, who was celebrated and symbolized by rabbits and eggs, because she was the goddess of fertility. So we need to emphasize the fact that Resurrection Day is not some pagan goddess festival, but is a celebration of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior from the tomb. And we should be thankful now that I have glasses to wear and can read what's before me. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, will help thee, yea, will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. They that wait upon the Lord will mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Let's begin with a word of prayer. We always begin with silent prayer few moments of silent prayer to give everybody an opportunity to confess sins privately to God the Father as part of the function of our royal priesthood. We know from Scripture that if God will not hear us because of sin in, in the life, then we cannot have the filling of the Holy Spirit because of sin. Scripture says that uh, we must confess our sins, and God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is an act of of our part of our priesthood, it's part of the privacy of our priesthood, that we get to this wonderful privilege. It's not based on feeling sorry for our sins. It's not based on bargaining with God. It is based simply on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and because he has paid that penalty, we have the privilege of access to God on the basis of, of uh, cleansed sin. We are restored to fellowship. We uh, can resume the spiritual life, and we have the filling of the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher and guide, and is the one who helps us understand his word so that we can apply it in our lives. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for the fact of this day that it represents the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ who had victory over death. And in his victory over death, we have victory over death, and we will have a resurrection body when we die. We are absent from the body face-to-face -face with the Lord and look forward to receiving a resurrection body at the rapture of the church. And his victory over death is in an indicator 
and attests to the reality of his spiritual death on the cross that paid the penalty for our sins so that we might have eternal life in him. And Father, we thank you for the completed work of our salvation, that our salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. You did everything and we do nothing. So Father, we thank you simply for this. And now as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, be receptive to the teaching of God the Holy Spirit this morning to apply these things in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians, excuse me, Galatians chapter 5, verse 4. And we will continue our study of this important chapter in the Bible. I think of various chapters like Ephesians 2, John 3, a number of others would be among the most important chapters in the Bible. Galatians 5 would certainly be ranked among them. This was one of the first places the Apostle Paul went in his, first, in his first missionary journey after he left the island of Cyprus. He went north into the sort of the south-central region of what is now known as Turkey, what was then the Roman, known in the Roman Empire as Asia Minor. The area of Galatia was settled by some Celts about two to three centuries earlier. The Celts were the same people who also settled in Gaul and uh, later merged with the Germanic people, the Franks, and that became known as France. Other Celtic groups went to uh, Ireland and Scotland and became the Irish and the Scots and uh, had a great impact in history. If you know anything about the Irish, you know anything about the Scots and their backgrounds, you know that they were always prone to various religious and mystical systems. And the Gauls who migrated to Asia Minor, Minor were no different. And so when Paul and Barnabas came in that first missionary journey, they wanted to worship them as Zeus and his messenger Hermes. And uh, Paul and Barnabas immediately disabused them of that notion and would not allow them to carry that act of worship forward. And during that first missionary journey, that first encounter, which was probably several months long, during that time, Paul clearly explained the gospel to the Galatians. He explained that salvation was by faith alone in Christ alone. He explained the basic doctrines of redemption and justification. We know this because he alludes to that in this epistle to the Galatian church. He taught them that because man is a sinner, there is nothing that we can do to gain or acquire eternal life. That man is unrighteous. No matter how good he is, no matter how how proud we may be of our own behavior when comparing it to other people, that when we compare the best of the best of our behavior to the perfect, righteous criterion of the justice of God, there is no match. We fall short of the perfect righteousness of God, and His righteousness is the standard of His integrity, and His justice is the execution of the righteousness of God. And so what the righteousness of God rejects The justice of God must condemn. But the love of God initiated a solution in eternity past based upon grace. Grace means that God does all the work and man simply receives it. This is in contrast to all religious systems. All religious systems are based on the assumption that somehow man helps out God by doing good. That man tries to impress God with his own works, with his rituals, and with bargaining with God. 
But the Scriptures teach that all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. And there is nothing that we can do that impresses God at all. And so Paul taught them that salvation was by faith alone in Christ alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Secondly, he taught that the spiritual life followed the same model as salvation. That the spiritual life also was based upon faith in the Word of God under the power of God the Holy Spirit. So that the spiritual life is different from being a simple moral or ethical system. God established morality for the entire human race, believer and unbeliever alike. Morality, human ethical systems are designed for the perpetuation and the stability and the protection of the human race. Systems of morality, therefore, have nothing to do with spirituality. Anything the unbeliever can do is not part of the unique spiritual life of the church age. But what happened in Galatia was as after Paul and Barnabas left, a group of Jews came in who claimed to say that uh, they were teaching the true gospel. Perhaps they even said they were teaching the full gospel. That Paul and Barnabas came in and they had taught you that you need to believe in Jesus and Jesus is the Messiah and that's all well and good, but they only told you part of the story. Now we're going to tell you the rest of the story. And the rest of the story means that that accepting Christ is good, but you also have to become part of Judaism because it is the Jews that God has blessed. So you need to uh, enter into that relationship with God on the basis of circumcision, which was a ritual associated with the Abrahamic covenant. So you have circumcision at the point of uh, salvation. They were teaching that salvation is by faith plus works plus circumcision. Now today we have various systems and they don't... They don't emphasize circumcision, but they emphasize other rituals and other activities on man's part. They emphasize uh, faith plus baptism, faith plus joining a church, faith plus giving, faith plus any number of good deeds, faith plus living a kind of life that reflects that you are a believer. These are the things that are often taught today along the same lines as the Judaizers. They also taught that in terms of the spiritual life, that the way to live your spiritual life and to grow spiritually and have a relationship with God was through the application of the Mosaic Law. That's why they are called legalists, because they were intent upon putting the Mosaic Law upon the Gentile Galatians. Now, the Mosaic Law was never intended for Gentiles. The Mosaic Law was a part of a contract or covenant that God made with Israel in the Old Testament. And it was specifically with Israel. Now, it surprises some people when they find out that, that certain things in the Mosaic Law were wrong, were morally wrong, and had been condemned by God from, from creation, like murder, adultery, thievery, lying, all these things. The, the Ten Commandments didn't establish that. The Ten Commandments were simply a code that, that was the basis for the entire Mosaic Law, which was the constitution for the new nation Israel that God was calling into existence at that time. But the Mosaic Law, even in the Old Testament, was never the basis for the spiritual life of the Old Testament believer. It provided principles within the ritual section that were important for them, but it was not, the, most of the law was directed to the entire nation, believer and unbeliever alike. So what we learn from this is that <clears throat> the Galatians faced some 
problems that are typical throughout the church age. First of all, they faced people, the, the Judaizers taught that man can do something to impress God. This is so common. People get wrapped up on this. They just can't understand grace, that God did everything. And people just want to add something to salvation. Somehow I have to impress God. They, they say, is it just enough to believe in Jesus? I, I can't believe I don't have to do anything. People want to think that they can do something somehow that impresses God. Secondly, people think that the demands of a righteous God can be achieved through human effort, through morality, through ritual, and through religious activity. This is so common, a typical assumption that somehow God can be impressed or that the righteous demands of God can be met through religious activity, through ritual, through morality, through religious activity. Third problem is that people fall into the trap of thinking that the spiritual life is the result of ritual plus morality. Here's the formula. This is the common formula. The spiritual life is the result of ritual plus morality. That's what the Judaizers taught. That's what many churches today teach. But that's not what the Bible teaches. This is the error that Paul is correcting in this epistle. First problem that he's correcting is that man can do something to impress God. Secondly, that the righteous demands of God can be achieved through human effort, morality, ritual, or religious activity. Third, that the spiritual life is a result of ritual plus morality. Fourth thing we need to realize is that, that people fail to understand the complexity of man's problems. We have a diagram here that we've used before to illustrate the complexity of the sin problem. This is the barrier that man erected between himself and God at the instant of Adam's fall. That barrier comprises of six bricks. First of all, the problem of sin, the problem of the true guilt of sin, not guilt feelings, but the true legal guilt of having violated the commands of God. And the Scripture says that all have sinned and falls short of the glory of God. The second brick is the penalty of sin, which is death. That the penalty for spiritual for uh, sin is spiritual death, which culminates in physical death. Third, there is the problem of physical birth. We are born physically alive, but we are born physically dead. I mean, spiritually dead, physically alive but spiritually dead. Third, we have relative righteousness. No matter how good we are, it is relative. God's righteousness is absolute and perfect. The fifth problem, or the fifth, a fifth aspect of the barrier, is the character of God. God is a righteous God. How can a righteous God let sinners into heaven? The issue is not how can a loving God send his creatures to the lake of fire, the issue is how can a righteous God allow sinners into heaven? And then finally, our position in Adam. Scripture says, in Adam all die. Because of our relationship to the first human being, Adam, because of his position as the federal head of the human race and our representative, when he sinned, we sinned. 
and we fell in Adam, so that every human being is born a sinner by virtue of their position in Adam. This is the complexity of the sin problem. It's not simple. And the problem that many people have is that they just want to simplify these things so much that they think that you can easily get salvation and you can just do this or do that and you can be saved. But how can any act on our part, any ritual, overcome the complexities described in the sin barrier? God alone provided the solution. The sin problem is solved through the doctrines of redemption and unlimited atonement. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin. That's the payment price. He redeemed us. He purchased us from the slave market of sin. The extent of the atonement is for all. Whosoever will. Jesus died as a substitute for all. The penalty of sin, which is assessed against us, is resolved through the doctrine of expiation. That Christ, the the debt of our sin, was nailed to the cross. Physical birth. We're born physically alive, but spiritually dead. This is resolved through the doctrine of regeneration, that we are born again. At the moment you put your faith alone in Christ alone, at that instant, God the Holy Spirit creates and imparts to you a new human spirit to which God imputes eternal life, His very own life, so that we are His forever and we have eternal life as part of our new nature. Regeneration. Uh, Relative righteousness is resolved through two doctrines. First, the doctrine of imputation. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. And because we now possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, even though we still have a sin nature, we still sin, we're still capable of doing everything we could have done before we were saved, we receive the righteousness of God. And uh, and because we have the righteousness of God imputed to us, the righteousness of Christ, Scripture says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us in order that we might be found in the righteousness of of God. And then, because we possess the righteousness of God, we are justified. God looks at us and declares us to be just. And why is that? Because His character has been satisfied by the death of Christ. That's what propitiation means. Satisfaction. God's perfect righteousness looked at the cross and His absolute standard of righteousness was satisfied by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ His justice was satisfied, and because it was satisfied, God the Father is propitiated. The problem of the character of God is resolved. And then because of our position in Adam, we are placed in Christ, and our position in Christ solves the problem. So what we see here is that the problem of salvation is very complex. How in the world can people think that these complexities, all of these problems can be resolved simply through baptism? simply through attending church, giving money, these superficial religious activities. God must do it all because it is an overwhelming problem that only God can provide the solution to. So Paul explained all of this in his first journey, and that is what we have been studying throughout this epistle. He emphasizes in this epistle justification in Galatians 2.16. Nevertheless, Because we know that a man is not justified by works of law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of law, since by the works of law no flesh shall be justified. And then in Galatians 3.13, he emphasizes redemption. Christ redeemed us. He paid the penalty. He 
purchased us from the slave market of sin. He purchased us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so he brings the Galatians back to this. This is one of the harshest epistles in the Bible. And we see that Paul does not have the attitude that most people expect from a pastor. That he's just so kind and so gentle. And he just says everything in a certain tone of voice that just soothes the spirit. He's very harsh. He verbally slaps them across the face many times in this epistle to get their attention. Because the issues are so important. If you think that you can get to heaven on the basis of works, then your soul stands in the threat of eternal condemnation and spending eternity in the lake of fire. And secondly, if you think that you're going to grow spiritually on the basis of works, then you will destroy your spiritual life in the process. Not that you will lose your salvation, but that you will end up in heaven, as 1 Corinthians 3 says, yet is through fire. Your spiritual life, you will have uh, just abused and misused everything that God has given you for living your spiritual life. And so Paul brings them back to this point, and he comes to the point in Galatians 5, as we have seen the last month or so, that it was for freedom that Christ set us free, that the law enslaves, but Christ's death on the cross in grace has set us free. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, we have the mandate, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And Paul says that if you yield to the law, obedience to the law in one little part like circumcision, then you must come make, put yourself under obligation to the whole law in verse 3. And that brought us down to verse 4. In verse 4, the issue is eternal security. In verse 4 it says, You have been severed from Christ. And this has been misunderstood. This has been mistranslated by some and misapplied by others into teaching this doctrine that you can lose your salvation. And we exegeted this passage last time, and we saw that it began with a very important verb, katargeo. It is the aorist passive indicative to leave, to occupy, to nullify, to make of no effect. And so Paul is saying you have nullified. Christ. You have been severed from Christ. You have made your relationship with Christ of no effect. And the point that Paul is making is not that your salvation has disappeared, but that all that God has done for you in salvation is not benefiting you at all in your spiritual life as long as you're operating on the principle of legalism. You see, our relationship with God is defined in terms of these two circles. At the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, we are entered into union with Jesus Christ through the baptism of God the Holy Spirit. This is a non-experiential event. It takes place at the instant of salvation. We don't feel anything. It's not measured by excitement or speaking in tongues or anything else. But we are identified with Christ and in union with Him. This is our eternal relationship. At the moment of salvation, God gives us 40 different things. These are spiritual realities that are ours for all eternity. This top circle represents our eternal relationship with God that can never be severed. The bottom circle represents our temporal relationship with the Lord. 
As long as we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we are in fellowship with God and we are advancing spiritually. But the moment we sin, the Bible says that we are grieving the Holy Spirit. Remember, God is righteous. The Holy Spirit indwells and fills us and the Holy Spirit is righteous. And when we commit some sin, it is unrighteousness and the righteousness of God cannot have fellowship with unrighteousness. So the sin we commit, no matter how small it is, James says in James 2, uh, 9 and 10, that if you violate the law in the least commandment, you violated the whole law. So when you commit a sin of either ignorance or cognizance, you are immediately out of fellowship, under the control of the sin nature, grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit. When you operate on legalism, that's what happens. You go outside the bottom circle. You are saying the grace of God is not good enough. I have to do something. Well, that's wrong. That's putting the emphasis on your works and your effort. And that grieves and quenches the Holy Spirit. You're out of fellowship and you're in carnality and you're under control of the sin nature. Remember, the sin nature not only produces personal sins, mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue and overt sins, the sin nature also produces good works. The sin nature also produces morality, and the Bible calls it dead works. And so you produce dead works out here of religion. And religion makes it look like you're having a good relationship with the Lord and growing spiritually, but you're not. In fact, you're a failure in the spiritual life because you're trying to do it in the energy and power of the sin nature and not in the energy and power of God the Holy Spirit. So what Paul is talking about here is that when you have, you have been severed from Christ, he is saying that by accepting this doctrine of circumcision, accepting the idea that you are going to advance spiritually by means of morality and good works and ritual, that you are placing yourself out of bounds, outside the bottom circle, away from where Christ has benefit. When you're in the bottom circle filled with the Holy Spirit, then your relationship with Christ has a benefit for you. You are walking in the sphere of grace. But we are, when you are outside that sphere in legalism, then the Holy Spirit and your relationship with God is of no value in terms of your spiritual life. And that is what Paul is saying here. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. He is saying that if you are trying to be justified by law, then you have separated yourself from the source of life, which is the gospel of grace. And so you must get rid of this legalism and seek to be justified by faith and not by works. And he says, in conclusion, you have fallen from grace. And there are so many people who take this passage in the sense of losing your salvation. And what they are doing is making the mistake of interpreting grace as some sort of status. And that if you are in this status of grace, you're saved. And that if you fall from grace, then you're no longer saved. And that's not what the passage is saying at all. In fact, if you accurately understand the Greek of this passage and exegete it correctly, the verb here that is translated fallen is the Greek verb pipto, P-I-P-T-O. And this verb means to fall, it means to be removed, and it was a nautical term which means to be driven off course. And what Paul is saying is you have been driven off course from grace. You have been diverted from grace by this teaching, this false teaching of the legalists. What's the solution? The solution is restoration, and restoration comes through confession of sin, and confession means to acknowledge or to admit your sin privately to God the Father. 
And at the instant we acknowledge or admit our sins to God the Father, we are forgiven, cleansed, and we are restored to fellowship with God. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. We are restored to fellowship with God, and we can advance in the spiritual life simply by applying the principle of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess, that means to admit or acknowledge our sins. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. That means He wipes the slate clean of all sins, whether we confess them or not. All sins, because some we've forgotten. There were some that we do not uh, realize were sins. But the slate is wiped clean, all unrighteousness. So we are wiped clean, and then we can advance in the spiritual life. Now today, when it comes to this issue of eternal security, we're faced with three different problems and three different approaches to this whole doctrine. The first is that which is usually associated with Arminianism. Now Arminianism as a system starts with the definition of the nature of man as being totally free. Totally free. Now, that's, that's an important concept, that man is born totally free in the same sense that Adam was free in the garden. Now, Adam was created free in the garden because he was created righteous. He had the perfect righteousness of God because he was created in the image and likeness of God. So, Adam had a sense of freedom that we do not have. He was born free from sin. He was not in bondage to sin. But the problem with Arminianism is it says that every single person is born in that same condition, that we do not inherit a sin nature from Adam, that we, we uh, are sinners because we sin. This is how they would phrase it. We are sinners because we sin. Now, that is not what the Bible says. The Bible says we sin because we're sinners. We sin because we are born with a sin nature we inherit from Adam. That Adam's original sin is imputed to that sin nature, and we also commit personal sins. But our condemnation is based upon Adam's sin and its imputation to us, and it is not based upon our individual acts of sin. So Arminianism falls apart here because it puts all the emphasis on human volition, and says every human being is absolutely free, and you can choose for God, and when you trust Christ as your Savior, that's the issue. Sometimes they'll add works, but we'll be kind in this illustration. And they will say that salvation is the result of faith in Christ. But they will also say that God did all He could do for you at the cross, and now the rest is up to you. So God's going to save you, but it's up to you to keep that salvation. You have to keep it. He gave it to you, but you have to keep it. And so keeping it, any kind of security, is based on your works. And frankly, that's no security at all. So you never know if you're saved. You never know if you're going to spend eternity in heaven till the day you die because you may commit some sin. You may perform some act. You may think some thought and lose your salvation. They call that backsliding. 
Now, backsliding is a biblical term, but this is not what the Bible means by backsliding. Backsliding in the Bible does not mean losing your salvation. Now, the second approach, this is what's called front-loading the gospel with works. Because really, you have to have works. You have to, it's not really faith alone in Christ. It's faith plus works. That keep, it's the works that keep you saved. But let me tell you something. If you, if you can do something to lose your salvation, that means you had to do something to gain your salvation. And that's the works. Now, the more subtle form today is what has come to be known as lordship salvation. Now, it's called lordship salvation because in its most extreme form, it is saying that salvation... The salvation message is that you must believe Jesus died for you and accept Him as Lord of your life. Sometimes it defines faith as making a commitment to Jesus. Faith does not mean to make a commitment. Jesus made a commitment to go to the cross. Scripture says we believe that He died for us or not. Belief is not the same as commitment. This is the harshest form. There's a more subtle form to lordship salvation. Because you see what's inherent within lordship salvation is the idea that somebody can have faith in Christ and they would say that when you believe, when you have true Saving faith, let me write this out here and put it in quotes, saving in quotes. When you have saving faith in Christ, it will necessarily produce works. Now, how do you know you're saved in the Lordship system? Just like you do in the Arminian system. The interesting thing is the Lordship system has its roots in Calvinism, which is supposed to be opposed to Arminianism. True faith in Christ is works, and they would say that you can have a faith in Christ that is non-saving. And we have studied this in our exposition of John chapter 2 in the second hour. John 2, if you remember, Jesus is talking to the crowds, and there are great crowds in, in Jerusalem, His first visit to Jerusalem. And it says that many believed on His name. And the Apostle John uses this phrase in the Greek. The verb pistuo plus the preposition ace. P-I-S-T-E-U-O. And the preposition ace. E-I-S. This is the standard way the Apostle John expresses salvation. The end of the Gospel of John, he says, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Believe that is how it's translated there. And it's the same phrase, pistuo eis. Sometimes it's translated believe in. Sometimes it's translated believe that. But always it's the same phrase throughout the Gospel of John. Believe what? In the Gospel of John, it's clear. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through His name believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross 
for your sins, died as your substitute. Now, the people in John 2 were told, many believed in his name, Pistuo Apes. And then it says, but Jesus did not trust himself to them. And so the self-righteous crowd, the lordship crowd says, if they were true believers, Jesus would have trusted himself to them. See, their hidden assumption is that something happens at regeneration to limit, reduce, or nullify part of the sin nature. So after salvation, you won't be as bad as you were before you were saved. Yet regeneration doesn't say anything about getting rid of the sin nature. It says everything about acquiring a new nature. But the old sin nature is still there. And folks, if you haven't discovered it yet, your sin nature is just as powerful as it was before you were saved. In fact, after you're saved, because you enter into spiritual warfare and the angelic conflict, you may discover that you're tempted in ways you never dreamed of before you were saved. And you may fall into some sins that you never thought you would commit before you were saved. Well, Jesus doesn't trust himself to them because he knows that, number one, they have accepted him, but they don't have any doctrine. They don't have a thimble full of doctrine. They don't know one bit of truth, and they're still operating on the human viewpoint assumption that the Messiah is going to come and deliver them from Rome, and they have a political agenda. And so Jesus doesn't trust himself to them because he's not going to trust himself to a bunch of baby believers who don't know anything. He's not avoiding them because they're really not saved. See, if words mean anything, and everywhere else, pistuoase is the condition for accepting Christ, then you've got to say it's the condition that in John chapter 2, those folks are saved. But the Lordship crowd says, no, they're not saved, because if they were, Jesus would have trusted himself to them. So they have a faith in Christ that's non-saving. And I would say that this is the whole issue in Lordship salvation right here. And there are a lot of people who claim to reject lordship salvation who believe this. In fact, I got some literature this last week from a church here in Connecticut. And they have a pamphlet that they put out against lordship salvation. And it's a fairly good critique of this expression of lordship. That you don't need to commit yourself to Christ. But you just believe on the Lord. That you don't have to make him lord of your life to be saved. And they're right. But then they also go on to say that you can have a faith in Jesus, that if you have real saving faith, you produce works, and they go to James 2. The problem with James 2 is James 2 is written to believers and not unbelievers. James 2 is talking about the kind of faith that produces works in the spiritual life, and it's not talking about the kind of faith that produces justification salvation, because that word saved, used in James, always is talking about phase two salvation. Remember, phase one is at the cross. We put our faith alone in Christ alone. That is called justification salvation. But the Bible uses that word saved in three different senses. It also uses the word saved to refer to the spiritual life phase two. Saved in the sense of sanctification experiencing, living out all the benefits of our justification, phase one. And then it is also used, three, in terms of glorification, salvation. Remember, these three phases are expressed as phase one, saved from the penalty of sin. Phase two, saved from the power of sin. 
And phase three, saved from the presence of sin. At justification, we no longer have an eternal destiny of hell, but of heaven. In phase two, we no longer are under the dominion and power of the sin nature, but now we have the freedom to live for God. And that's what Paul is talking about in this chapter. And then glorification is when we no longer have a sin nature and we're in heaven. And folks, we're not there yet. We still have sin natures. So this, these are the first two. The Arminian solution, you can believe, but you can lose your salvation. The Calvinist solution in the Lordship crowd, that you can be justified by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. That's how they'll express it. And uh, the problem there is the same. You can't know you're saved until you die. Because if real saving faith, folks, think about this. If real saving faith produces works, then the only way you're going to know if you have saving faith instead of non-saving faith is if you have works. And if you can go ten years in your spiritual life coming to church, learning doctrine, applying doctrine, and then decide it's all worthless, and you throw it all out, and you go live like a, like a heathen pagan, and you just do whatever you want to do and carry on with the works of the flesh all you want to, then, the, <clears throat> then you'd say, well, I'm, I never was saved because I didn't have works throughout my life. For the Lordship crowd, assurance is not based on the Word of God. Assurance is based on your lifestyle. And you don't know whether you persevered in good works until you die. So you can't know, for the Lordship person, just like for the Arminian, you can't know you're saved until you die. Because you won't know whether you had the right kind of works or not. Folks, that's heresy. 1 John 5.13, John said, These things I have written to you who believe, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. He didn't say so that you can be pretty positive that you have an eternal life. So that you can have 51% certainty. In fact, there's a professor who is the chairman of the theology department in a rather large evangelical seminary in this country, who, where a friend of mine is working on a doctoral degree, and that professor said that at best you can have 50%, 51% assurance of your salvation because you never know when you may commit some sin that will demonstrate that you didn't have saving faith. But what Paul is saying in Galatians is that justification is by faith alone. Here's the formula. Justification from faith Plus, nothing, no works are required whatsoever. It's faith alone in Christ alone. So with that for background, let's begin a study of the doctrine of eternal security. We won't get it covered completely this morning, but we will next week. First of all, let's have a definition. Definition of eternal security. Eternal security is the work of God which guarantees that God's free gift of salvation is eternal and cannot be lost, terminated, abrogated, nullified, or reversed by any thought, act, or change of belief in the person saved. Let me read that to you one more time. The work of God which guarantees that God's free gift of salvation is eternal and cannot be lost. Terminated, abrogated, 
nullified or reversed by any thought, act, or change of belief in the person saved. It begins by saying that it is the work of God. Eternal security is a work of God. God is the one who keeps us. We are not kept by ourselves. Salvation is a package that is completely performed by God, both the execution of it on the cross and the application of it and bringing us to final glory. It is the work of God. It is not the work of man. It guarantees something so that we can know with certainty that we have eternal life. That God's free gift of salvation, you see, if we have to do anything to get it or to keep it, it's not free. But the Bible says that to come and drink freely of the waters. It is God's free gift of salvation. It is eternal. That means it's not, it can't be lost. It's ours forever. We can't lose it. It can't be terminated, abrogated, nullified, or reversed. There's no backing up. It is given to us completely at one point in time. It is not a process. It is given to us at one point in time. We must realize that since man does nothing to earn or deserve the free gift of salvation, he can do nothing to lose the free gift of salvation. God does not take back what he has once given. So eternal security is an unbreakable relationship with the integrity of God. Remember the integrity of God focuses on the righteousness of God and the justice of of God, What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes. So that what the, righteousness of God, uh, what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns, and the love of God initiated a solution in eternity past through the grace of God. Now, once we accept Christ as our Savior and Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed to us, then what the righteousness of God accepts, the justice of God blesses through the love of God and expressed through the grace of God. So when we're accepted, it is not on the basis of the righteousness or righteous acts or good deeds that we have done, but it's based solely and exclusively on that righteousness that Christ has. So we have nothing to do with it. Our good deeds, our decisions, nothing affects the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the definition. Now let's look at some explanation and some support for this. Point number two. God the Father's purposes in salvation cannot be overridden. This goes back to eternity past. Here's a timeline. Here's the creation. And God existed for all eternity. There never was a time when God did not exist. And God's knowledge is eternal. And it, we, theologians talk about the council of divine decrees which took place in eternity past. It is an eternal decree. In the council of divine decrees, God establishes His purposes and methods for human history. Nothing can violate God's purposes. Nothing can override God's purposes. Now look at Romans 8, 29 and 30. This is a crucial passage. Romans 8, 29 and 30. We're going to flip around because I want you to go to several key passages 
that relate to eternal security. So you can understand how these work, because there are several of you I know that have asked me about eternal security and about various questions because you're witnessing to somebody or some individuals who have a problem with understanding eternal security. Here we have a series of phrases describing God's work for the believer. They all describe the same group of people. Notice how precise this is. It begins, for whom he foreknew. So we have one group of people called the whom. The relative pronoun describes one group of people, and let's say this is three billion people. For whom he foreknew, that means all three billion, he also predestined. So he takes the first whom, and he takes every one of them, and he predestines them. Doesn't leave anybody out, and doesn't acquire anybody else. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Now, predestined means that we have the destiny of Jesus Christ. It's a future concept. It means that it's, the pre indicates that it happens in the past. The destiny is what will be ours in eternity future. So we have a destiny. Those whom he foreknew have a destiny with Christ to be conformed to his image, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now look at verse 30. And those whom he predestined, no more and no less, the same three billion, those whom he predestined, he doesn't add any, he doesn't lose any, these he calls. And whom he called, no more and no less, it's the same group of people, it's the same three billion, it's the whom. The whom he, it's the same three billion he predestined. These he called, and whom he calls, these he justifies. It's the same group, he doesn't lose any, he doesn't gain any. It's the same group of people. And whom he justifies, these he glorifies. So that tells us that everyone that God justifies is glorified. So that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Scripture says at that instant you are justified. Well, this verse tells us that everyone that is justified will be glorified. So you can't lose your salvation. Nobody can be lost. It's the same group of people. God the Father's purposes cannot be overridden. The same group that He foreknows are glorified. None are lost in the process. Romans 8, 29 and 30. Point number three. God the Father's omnipotence. We have to go back and look at the character of God, the essence of God. Remember the three O's, the omnibrothers. God is omniscient. He knows all the knowable. God is omnipotent. There's nothing outside the power of God. He can do everything necessary to fulfill His purposes. And God is omnipresent. He is present at every moment to every aspect, every atom in His creation. So point number three references His omnipotence. God the Father's omnipotence is more powerful than human attempts to negate their salvation. God's omnipotence is more powerful than anything you can do to try to lose your salvation. Therefore, He is able to keep the believer secure. This is in Jude 1, 24. Now, to Him who is able to keep you. See, God is the one who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. It is Christ who keeps us, not we who keep ourselves. 
John 10, 28 and 29 is another very crucial passage. Jesus is speaking and He says, And I give eternal life to them. So when we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, eternal life is given to us. It is a gift. God does not take it back. He says, I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of My hand. The Lord Jesus Christ holds us in His hand. And there is nothing on heaven, in heaven or on earth that, can, that is more powerful than His hand. Furthermore, in verse 29, Jesus says, My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So we are held doubly. We are held in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are held in the hand of God the Father. So that nothing, no power on heaven or on earth, can take us out of the hand of God. So point number three, God's omnipotence is more powerful than anything in creation. Nothing that any human being can do can override, negate, or reverse salvation. Point number four. And this is a point that people just overlook. This is one of the most important points for us to think about. It goes back again to the character of God. Now think about this. God is omniscient. That means that God knows all the knowable. God is eternal. That means that God has eternally known all the knowable. Since God has eternally known all the knowable, and since God never changes, God has known all the knowable simultaneously forever. Now that's a heavy concept. It's linking together immutability, eternal life, and omniscience. He knows all the knowable. He has always known all the knowable. And since he can't change, he can't acquire or lose knowledge, he has always known all the knowable simultaneously. Now that means that when God planned salvation in eternity past, he knew all the facts. He knew every sin you would ever commit. He knew every sin every human being would ever commit. He knew every failure. He knew everything that would happen in human history, and God is not surprised. And because He is omnipotent, He was able to devise a plan that was large enough and complex enough to cover every single contingency and to deal with every single sin in human history so that there is no sin, there is no evil that you can commit that is too great for the power and the knowledge of God. God does not say, oops, you committed some act that... It wasn't on the cross. I slipped up, so now you're going to lose it. That's blasphemy. God is omniscient. He knows all the knowable. And therefore, God could provide a perfect plan for us. No sin surprises God. No sin was left undealt with. And no sin is too great for the plan of God. Point number five. No one. Angelic or human, can bring a charge or condemn those who are saved. No one, angelic or human, can bring a charge or condemn those who are saved. Why is that? Number one, Christ's death paid the penalty for every single sin in human history. Point number two, Christ's righteousness was imputed to every believer at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone. And therefore, because the basis for our acceptance with God is Jesus Christ, and the King James translated it in Ephesians 1, 6, 
that we were accepted in the Beloved. You see, the basis for our acceptance is because we're in Christ, not because of anything that we have done. Because of that, no charge can be brought against us because the issue is not us, the issue is Christ, and no charge can be brought against Christ. His payment was sufficient. Now, what Scripture said and what we can reason is that if any sin can undo a believer's salvation, then either A, Christ's death did not pay for that sin, or B, Christ's payment was not enough. And so we have to add something to it. Both are blasphemy. Romans 8, 33 and 34 says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. The point is, God is greater than we are. Yet people are so arrogant that they think that they are greater than God and that they can do something to cancel or nullify the grace of God. They're so afraid that somebody's going to get away with some sin, that some Christian is going to go out there and live like the devil and get involved in licentiousness and antinomianism and all sorts of hell-raising, and they're not going to get to, so they're going to miss out on all the fun. So they want to impose some kind of standard on everybody because they're afraid somebody is going to get away with sin. But God is the one who sits at the Supreme Court of Heaven, and God knows all the knowable, and nobody's going to get away with anything. God's going to take care of it. And the trouble is, so many people in their self-righteousness just want to go around and try to control everybody else's behavior and do it through guilt, and that's the essence of religious systems. Religious systems motivate through guilt. Christianity motivates through love and grace. And some people can just never understand that. Point number six, and I think this will be our last point this morning. To think that you can help God out is nothing but arrogance. God doesn't need our help. We need God's help. And that's the grace policy of God. Man's failure does not cancel the integrity of God. God's plan is not based upon our success, but upon His success. Man's weakness cannot negate God's strength. Lack of integrity in the believer cannot nullify the integrity of God. Failure to live out the plan of God in our life does not cancel our eternal salvation. The problem is we are more impressed with our failures than with the integrity of God and the grace of God. And what we need to be is more impressed with the integrity and grace of God than with our sins and with our failures. And that's the reason so many don't believe in eternal security. They're just so impressed with who they are and what they've done, and they just don't have a large enough picture of the power of God and the grace of God and the complexities of our salvation. We've covered six points, and we have seven more to go to conclude the our study, or eight more to go to include our, conclude our study of the uh, eternal security, and we'll come back and look at that next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this privilege we've had to go through this study of your word and to see how, how great your grace is, how great our salvation is, that it has indeed handled every problem, every sin in human history. And therefore, the issue is not what we've done, the issue is what you've done. The issue is not how bad we are, but how perfect the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was 
and how it satisfies your justice and your righteousness, how it solves all the problems of the sin barrier so that we can have eternal life. Now, Father, if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation, who is uncertain of their eternal destiny, who is without hope and without eternal life, we pray that right now, God the Holy Spirit would make clear to them the issue is faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's not works. It's not church membership. It's not baptism. It's not doing good. The issue is simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Scripture says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Father, as we continue throughout this week, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would remind us of the things we've learned this morning, that they might comfort us, challenge us, and encourage us in our spiritual life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.